but I think this is the most beautiful work a life could be dedicated to. Pondering God and then using my specific giftings, my specific experiences, the things that make Paul Pastor Paul Pastor, to help point other people to God in this way that really is sort of specific to me, but bigger than me and not about me at all. Paul Pastor is a theologian. He's a writer. And in his brand new book, The Listening Day, Meditations on the Way, he's written 91 thoughts on God, 91 scripture reflections, 91 ways to start your day oriented toward God. And Paul writes with such nuanced beauty. Uh, You're going to love his writing, but you're also going to love the many layers of meaning that you find within it. And as you listen to this conversation, you're going to know what I mean. Paul thinks on a very uh, beautiful and deep level. So enjoy this conversation and then go out and get his book, The Listening Day, Meditations on the Way, Volume 1 by Paul J. Pastor. Enjoy. Well, I'm here with Paul Pastor. Paul, we finally get to connect. How are you, my friend? I'm great, Steve. It's been like a year in the making, hasn't it? It really has been. And um, uh, we put out books uh, a year and a half ago, like weeks apart, sent them to each other, and it took us <laughs> it took us <laughs> a year and a half to converse. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's so dumb. But here we are. It's- it's because of the fame, right, Steve? The oh, extreme yeah. fame, oh, the gosh. legions of fans uh, <laughs> canceling on the Today Show multiple times, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, my my tens of fans just, just take up all my time, all my time. Uh, uh, well, at least there's uh, double digits for you. So. <laughs> Seriously, like... Well, here we are, though. Here yeah, we are. Oh, we are here. So... Um, Paul, uh, we're going to talk about uh, your your book, your new book, The Listening Day, Volume 1, Meditations on the Way. And Volume 1 hopefully means there's more volumes coming, yes? Yes, uh, quite a bit. So this is actually the start of um, of a much larger project, and I, and I call it a project. I, I don't know what word exactly to put on it, but let's call it project uh, that focuses on using this sort of uh, devotional, poetic meditation to focus my own attention on the presence of God in the here and now, uh, to focus other people's attention on that, and then just to create a space to, to really encounter God and to meet God. And I'm sure we'll get into, into unpacking this a little bit, like why a devotional from a person like me who hates devotionals, um, <laughs> yes. you know, yes. all, all of this type of thing. Uh, but really, this is this is the start of something much larger. So there's about 90 uh, entries uh, in in the book. There's 91, as careful counters uh, always point out to me. That's yes. that's so that we can roughly divide these four volumes into the calendar year. Oh, cool. And so we're actually going to release them uh, throughout the, this year and next. Uh, this is just a little bit of a teaser. We don't have a formal date, but October will be uh, the next volume's release date. Then we'll release actually a year's worth of content, including those first two volumes, all in a single bound volume. So somebody who does want to use this as a daily thing is able to do that. But we don't put calendar days on the entries. Uh, it's supposed to be this guilt-free, shame-free, spend spend a month on a single page if you need to kind of space. And we don't really want to tie it too closely to the, uh, to the external calendar. Um, 
But then right. after that full volume's out, we'll release two more small ones. And at that point, everything will be so complicated. No one will have any idea what they've purchased. <laughs> and, and hopefully no. someone will have will have connected with the, the heart and the spirit of the project. I actually love that you say that up front because I think um, whether it be read through the Bible in a year or, you know, when there are, you know, get through 30 days and 30 days, we just have, Americans especially, we have such a propensity to turn it into getting it done. Like that's the, mm -hmm. you know, the goal is to get through it. And if I get through it, then I, then I win. I don't know what I win, but I win something. <laughs> um, so thanks for bringing that up in the front. And, and I do have a bunch of questions about it. But first of all, uh, explain, um, like, what is your spiritual background? How did you grow up? What did you grow up believing? <laughs> and where are you now? Yeah. As a young child, my family was uh, deeply spiritual, but not at all Christian. My mom was uh, an adept at uh, transcendental meditation, and so that was a really integrated part of her life. My dad would probably have identified most closely with Zen Buddhism, but in just sort of a vague, floaty, uh, hippie, granola, Portland artist kind of way. <laughs> And uh, Jesus actually broke into their lives in a really powerful way when I was just entering grade school. Uh, the full story isn't really one I'm comfortable sharing in this space, but uh, it, it involved some really dynamic uh, mystical experiences for both of them. And it it, it was just an un, unignorable, <clears throat> really a, a breaking in, to use that uh, now theological cliche, of God into our family's life. And so within about a three month span, we went from kind of off the shelf, spiritual, but not religious Portland people living in a trailer way out in uh, the Oregon farmlands to uh, being in church. And so really in grade school, I, I was in Sunday school for the first time, heard the Bible stories for the first time, uh, kind of encountered Jesus along as, as part of that bigger conversion experience in my family was going through. So that was a four square church, uh, which was a really positive thing for us at the time. Um, really kind people, a big emphasis on the spirit. Four square is a pretty broad denomination. Uh, I would say that we were on the more conservative end of that, uh, of that spectrum, but there was still this, I think in hindsight, a really healthy emphasis on the spirit, healthy emphasis on the scriptures and just a really kind, uh, kind spirit about the place that, that nurtured me as a young person. So I grew up, uh, my dad eventually became a pastor. I was a pastor's kid, which I loved. And then I deeply hated. And then I deeply loved, yes. uh, made, made peace with that part of my life. And I ended up, um, actually going through seven years of theological education, studying Bible and theology, uh, at Multnomah university here in Portland for uh, my undergrad, uh, and then going on basically just to study Greek and Hebrew, uh, for an exegetical theology degree at Western Seminary, really focusing on intertextual links in the Bible, so the way that the Bible uses the Bible uh, and the implications that has for for inspiration and for for spiritual formation and and a lot of those other things that we're interested in. So, along the way, I uh, have been profoundly and deeply influenced by the mystics. Uh, especially the Carmelite Christian tradition, deeply influenced by Anglican spirituality, and then uh, eventually have returned to my four square roots. We currently serve as deacons of spiritual formation at Theophilus Church in Portland here, AJ Swoboda's church, which is uh, actually a four square church. You'd never know it. I to, didn't know um, that, man. Walk, I know AJ. Walk through the doors. I know yeah. AJ and I know Todd. He stand. 
Yeah, um, both good friends. Yeah, both Theophilus guys. I didn't know that was a four-square church. Wow, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, well, in, in, here's an interesting question because I feel like every other person I talk to is either becoming Anglican or heavily influenced by Anglican. So, like, what do you think that has to do with modern Christianity's need to sort of, you know, sink back into our mystic roots? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, Anglicanism is, uh, if you look at it historically, it was the section of the Reformation that was, from my perspective, the most charitable. It was a, it was a pretty kind Reformation, all things considered, and very intentionally considered uh, a lot of the source uh, documents, not just the scriptures, but the but preserving the tradition uh, of the early church and and. Um, oh, I believe it's Richard Hooker. Uh, it's been a long time since I've spent much thought on this, but I believe it's Richard Hooker who was one of the key theologians of that time who actually approached the whole conversation with an unusual degree of charity. And so I think that that actually speaks to our times because we're uh, we're poised to accept the kinder and gentler sides of, of uh, all spirituality, uh, but especially the mystical theology right now. Yes. Um, and... And so I think that there's probably a, an affinity there, a cultural affinity that no one, to my knowledge, has really traced. That's just my shoot from the hip response. Uh, but also they, they are a, you know, a more Western liturgical tradition and uh, probably the most familiar one to folks here. So it's, it's an easy step to be a Protestant and then say, oh, here are other Protestants, but they're sort of Catholic and sort of Catholic on purpose. And this is compelling. And it's a way to dip your toe in the apostolic waters without having to be rebaptized or pick a new name or do any of the things that right. the more actually apostolic traditions uh, would uh, would foist upon you as the convert. Yeah, totally. Um, I also think, I mean, there's the, we're all longing for um, embracing more mystery, I think, these days versus... Mm -hmm. Uh, trying to master our spirituality, I think, for so many years. Um, and even in the last 30 or 40 years, the church in the States, the non-denominational church, has focused on mastering your life, you know, has really looked mm -hmm. at the Bible as as the tool that you need in order to master your life and to, you know, be a good Christian and a, mm -hmm. and a, and a faithful dad. And, you know, versus looking at some of the... Um, um, some of the sacramental parts of mm, tradition mm -hmm. and church and, you know, so interesting. Well, uh, in this book you talk about, you know, I love how it starts actually. It starts with, with this, uh, meditation on dawn and waking up. Mm. So mm. talk about, I mean, there are some, you know, obvious reasons why you might start it that way, obviously, <laughs> but talk about that particular one, uh, you know, as why you, why you began that way and what waking up looks like? Hmm. That's a great question. Well, you'll notice that the first line of the project, and it's going to be a huge project when it's done, as I, as I said, uh, is look to the East. That's the first line of it. And, um, every page of this, at least in my intention, has some sort of symbolic cast to it and, uh, really an intuitively written, uh, but also intentionally crafted uh, way to direct our minds towards, uh, really towards God. And, and the sun has been the Christian symbol for Jesus, for revelation, 
for really the life bringer from the very, very beginning. You know, and, and I'm sure many of your listeners know how important it was um, for the early church to design their worship spaces and their worship experiences with really what I would call a sense of spatial theology. Yeah. That they would actually move uh, a catechumen, somebody who was joining the community, through these different directions as a means of physically orienting them to what was happening spiritually, not just in the ceremony, but in their larger life. You'd turn towards the West, you'd turn towards the East, you would face the waters, you would face away from the waters. Um, and to us today, that can sort of feel like an unnecessary dance, right? Because uh, I'm a little tongue in cheek here because baptism, for example, is is only the inward sign of an or the outward sign of an inward work. But the the early church didn't see that. It was right. a deeply integrated spirituality. And so, when we talk about dawn or waking up, um, really, this is an invitation to consider where we are. Yeah, where are you in relation to the sun? Beautiful. Um, you know, as it comes, you don't control the path of the sun, but you can control if you face it or not. Yeah. And, and that's a theme that I just see so much meaning in. God's going to break upon you and break upon me, whether we like it or not. That is the Christian story. But we get to choose whether or not we turn to face him. Yeah. It's and beautiful. our lives are determined by that choice. You know, it's it's interesting to the East, um, and you talk about this question, where are you? Uh, I've done some work with a rabbi, and he talks about that the directions in Hebrew have sort of meanings to them. So like the North is you know, sort of the hidden, the South is the wilderness, but the East is mm. the beginnings or the garden, right? And so mm. I think about the first question, right, that, that Adam and Eve are asked by God, which is, where are you? You know, and um, <laughs> so I love that. I love that. I love that. Mm. Uh, right from the beginning of your of your book, um, th there's mm. all this nuance and and layers. Uh, I love mm. that. So mm. um, I'm glad that that I'm glad that you're catching that because that's there on purpose. But it really does find its roots in the scripture. Yeah. Um, all of it finds its roots in the scripture and the tradition. Yeah. So I think there's there's a lot to uncover. There's a lot I'm still uncovering about it that is a real joy. Love it. Well, you talk about sort of the cult, or you write about the cultural crisis of presence, um, mm. that you can't find God in the past, you can't find God in the future, you can only find God right here and now. So talk more about that. Yeah, you bet. I just, I think that this is the besetting, um, not sin, but the besetting weakness of our age, of our day. I yeah. feel it in myself. I feel it in our culture. I feel it in education. It's, it's, absolutely everywhere. And you see it in the silliest places. I, I, I mean, I don't mean to, to convict or like cast shade through like people who take pictures of their food, but what an <laughs> odd thing it is <laughs> to take a picture of your food, right? Like there's actually, totally. there's a sense of, uh, there's a sense of perversion that's there that, yeah. that is not intentional and it's not, I wouldn't call it a sin, but it's a symptom of something really weird. Uh, you can't taste a picture. No one else, you know, really needs this. But what you're doing is you're trying to take a moment. Yeah. And instead of experiencing it directly, you're trying to, to preserve it. Uh, and it's like, it's like a taxidermy of time. To me. <laughs> right? I love that. 
Yeah, like you're stuffing this moment yeah. and you're cutting its head off yep. and you're putting it on the wall instead of letting it live and yeah. then letting it be free and letting it run away because it's going to run away and you know it's going to run away and you're right. scared that it's going to run away. And so it's this sense of fear that I think is at the root of our need to grab onto time. But the irony of it is the more you're trying to save a moment, the less you're in the moment. And the true tragedy or, or the danger of that is that God literally can only be known in the now. For God, the past is meaningless. The future is meaningless. He dwells in the eternal now. And he invites us to join him in that. And that's actually a very historic, that's a Carmelite view of, yeah. of the world. That's a Carmelite view of time. I'm very influenced by those, by that particular uh, tradition of mystics. So that's not an original thing to me at all. And I'm really glad about that. Uh, but thinking about time, I just think is, is a really helpful thing. Because I think what that encourages us to do is to taste our food and to chew our food metaphorically. Because... If if God is present here in this moment right now, as Steve and Paul are speaking uh, here at, you know, this moment when we're recording this podcast and at the moment where every single listener of this in the future will encounter it, then he's he has he has implied an invitation that he may be joined in that moment. And he's called us into that moment. And really, it's like. The dawn has broken upon you. Are we going to turn and face the sun? That's that's the choice that we have. So it's very simple, but it's very hard. And I just think that it is the most important work of our lives to turn ourselves uh, not towards the trend of presence, but towards the reality of it. Hmm. And okay, span on that a little bit because that feels like a thought bubble that needs to explode. Not the trend yeah. of presence, but the reality <laughs> of presence. Well, I'll be just I'll just be really honest because I include myself in in pretty much every indictment that I say. But you know, we're so good, not just as uh, as not just as Americans, but as Christians, and not just as Christians, but as Christians who pastor or write or lead in some way, we are so good at faking it. Mm -hmm. We are so good at counterfeit. We are so good at looking right, even to ourselves. And uh, the danger of self-deception like that is that you can feel like you've crossed off presence. You can feel like, okay, I've read a book on it. Okay, I've you know, read my roomie for the day and <laughs> I'm ready to go now. <laughs> right. And the truth is you haven't even scratched the surface. Like you haven't mastered anything in yourself. You, your attention is like a wild horse. And just cause you feel like you corralled it for a minute, you feel like you tamed it or you broke it. And, and you haven't, you, you just haven't, and you're deceived in it. And so you'll stop trying. And so you'll never achieve the goal of what you're trying for. Which is, which is, in the end, mastery. Like in the best of senses, discipline, self-discipline, the spiritual disciplines are mastery. That's how the Apostle Paul talks about it. And that can only be practiced, it can only be learned. Um, and I just think that we shoot ourselves in both feet when we, when we gloss over the surface of it. Uh, instead of instead of really diving deep and realizing what a crisis we might be in. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, and I think there's, you know, something about, um, uh, as I have studied even sort of meditation and, and being with God in the moment, the minute 
you even come aware of, oh, I was just with God, it's gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like there's a sense of, of, of yeah. needing, like being there in the moment is, is almost so reflexive and childlike um, that, um, mm. the, I mean, I, I, in my perspective, the more we master it, the, the, um, paradoxically, the less we're aware that we're doing it. Right. I mean, um, and, and I that's think so that's so true. Yeah, that's so true. That's the tricky. That's so piece. true. And the desert fathers and mothers, the desert fathers and mothers are the masters of this conversation. Just this sense of complete, uh, striving and complete rest at the same time. It's yeah. very paradoxical. Uh, and, and in the end, perfect prayer, um, really feels like play and it feels like innocence and it's simply an outgrowth of who you are. So yeah, yes, that's, that's a yes. wonderful caveat. Yes. A wonderful caveat. Oh, well, just, just a thought. Um, so, um, you are a writer and you're also involved in this beautiful church, Theophilus. Um, how, how do you spend, how do you spend your days? Is it mostly writing? Is it, I know you're a father of three, you're, you go around speaking places I mean, sort of what does your day look like? And, and, and then maybe part two of this question, how do you begin to practice, uh, presence? Because I do mm. think it's a man, it's a practice. It's an ongoing journey. What are some of the, the things that, that you have put in place so that you can learn more and more to be in the present? Yeah, you bet. Uh, I'll sketch out just uh, really quickly what our life looks like. We uh, we have what I would call a pretty integrated life. So I work from home. Um, my wife also works from home. She's an artist and uh, she educates our kids here currently. So we have this uh, space with a rambling garden and uh, it's kind of a center for, for life and learning and, and all of these things that we do. Besides my writing, my day job, quote, quote, is uh, really running this very small publishing services business that does editorial work for, for publishing houses and coaches, authors. And so that's also kind of integrated back into everything else. But, but that's the baseline for how we keep the whole rigmarole running is uh, seeking to use my giftings in really quiet ways elsewhere uh, in the publishing world. But then as far as presence goes, well, all of that is kind of the practice. Uh, I mentioned before how influenced I am by the Carmelite tradition uh, and the Carmelites, especially Brother Lawrence. He's the name that most people think of um, who was a Carmelite monk, uh, a brother who uh, really practiced, practiced the presence of God to the degree that he – uh, was a sought-after figure in his time and in his region f as a real master of prayer and and being in the presence. And his disciplines largely happened during his chores at the Abbey. And I would relate to that. You know, uh, we... It sounds sometimes very idyllic to people that we live out in the woods uh, in a very beautiful place that, um, you know, we garden and we... You know, there are cougars that watch us from the woods and sort of all this stuff. Uh, you and know, we've but named all, them and they all <laughs> prance about. <laughs> it's half true, Steve. That's why it's funny. Um, 
But, you know, it's a dirt under the fingernails life. Like we heat pretty much exclusively with wood. And you like you want to know how much wood it takes to keep a family warm all winter long in, in the Oregon Gorge? Like it's a lot. And yeah. you've got to get that and cut that and sharpen your chainsaw. And your hand gets cut up and you smell like gasoline. And then you got to stack it. And, oh, great, it's raining on the wood you just chopped. You know, it's just kind of gross. Yes. But it – but it um, – you know, kind of all the rhythms of our year, which we're pretty integrated with, frankly, they invite opportunities for our hands to be busy and for our minds and hearts to be still. And we seek to enter into that space as a family and, um, and God meets us there. So when you ask my personal practice, there are, you know, a few times a week that I'll set aside for intentional, quiet, close my eyes type prayer or take a walk type prayer. But really, the ways that my heart has been leaping and growing over the past five or six years have all been related to finding God in the middle of whatever the heck I'm doing and just giving him permission to make that moment uh, a true encounter with him. And he's never failed to show up. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, so I'm grateful for that. Beautiful. Uh, another question I had for you is talk about the importance of slowness. Um, and how we can cultivate that and, and maybe how the absence of slowness distances us from presence. Hmm. That's a really good idea. A uh, really good thing to think about. So slowness is, uh, slowness, slowness is a virtue in certain contexts, right? Slowness is a virtue. Uh, there are many things in nature that are good, even though they are not slow. Some processes of hunting, right? Like right. in hunting or or if you need to um, take an animal's life for food, you don't do it slowly. You do it very fast. You make the choice and you're decisive. So I'm not completely enamored with the idea that everything's got to be slowed down. But this idea of entering our life with a sense of correct pacing, mm. does the pace of what I'm doing match what needs to happen here? Ooh, I like that. Uh, I like that. Because there are some times where you're in it for the marathon, but some parts of life are a sprint too. And I think we've all felt, you know, that. So I think it's that sense of self-knowing and matching what's happening in your environment that really forms wisdom in those settings. So my concern in the culture that, that I see in my peers and uh, that I feel the gravity to in myself is that we don't even have a category for that. Yeah. Like we don't even, we don't even have it practiced in the least sense. Like when <laughs> we don't even go to the toilet without our phones anymore. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, what does that mean? What does that say about us? So that sense of slowness, I think should come, uh, with a permission for, uh, us to think about ourselves as sort of self-contained, like, you never have to be bored. You never have to look outside yourself or outside of the world that God has created to find wisdom, to find stimulus. Just just seek what's present there in front of you uh, and then seek to match your rhythm to it. Seek seek to join the, the larger thing that's happening around you. I like that, man. I really like finding the appropriate pace for whatever it is that you're doing, which requires some discernment and practice and getting it wrong, probably, you know. Um, yeah. You know, I think I think the temptation, even as you were answering that question, is is to believe that there's just, you know, 
yeah, everything is about slowing down or <laughs> speeding up or, and that's such a dualistic yeah. way of thinking, right? Of course it isn't. Of course it isn't. Of course there's, there's certain yeah. things that, that, that don't, that don't happen that way. And I think that's just another, I don't know, maybe it's another way to like, to, to reinforce the trend of presence versus the reality of presence, you know, like mm. when presence gets trendy and, and weird and, 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 you yeah. know, like, like be here now, um, exactly. as you're smoking pot and, um, anyway, <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, okay. Um, I had this question like, um, and I loved that you said, why did I write a devotional? Because in essence, I hate devotionals. I don't know mm -hmm. if I would say the same exact thing, but I think I, I have <laughs> noticed in devotionals, there's a, especially if they're well-written like yours, people just want to devour them, you know, like, like, like they want to get through them. And, and sometimes mm -hmm. because they want to have the achievement of getting through something, but also like when, when, when something tastes good, uh, instead of just savoring and, and like stopping when you're a little hungry, the tendency is to just wolf it down and just eat fast and not chew your food. And I think I think we get into that even as it relates to these kinds of things. So what would you say to people? Because I think when people buy this book, The Listening Day, Meditations on the Way, Volume 1, Volumes More to Come, which I love, um, the tendency is going to be for people to want to kind of buzz through them because they're so good. Uh, mm. I even found myself, you know, as I'm, as I'm reading your book kind of, Hey, well, you know, waking up, that was, that was good. What's the next one? Um, mm. talk about the appropriate pace of mm. this, of what you would hope for this book mm -hmm. as, as you people bet. read it. Yeah. I hope that people limit themselves to one a day, but, uh, I actually just received a message from somebody. He emailed me saying, uh, I read it in three days. I'm sorry. I'm going back now and reading it like one by one, yeah, yeah. but it was, it was, it was what I needed so much that I just couldn't stop. And I'm fine with that kind of yeah. back to the, the pace idea. My intention though, is that, you know, each one of these entries is intended to do a specific thing for you. It's intended to do a specific thing for your mind. It's not just intended to say something or teach something or impart a thought. It's intended to plant a picture. That's the way that I think about it. I think about this as, as prose or poetic uh, iconography. The imagery that's here, the symbolism that's here is all intended to direct your consciousness to a specific end, which is placing your attentiveness on God and helping you feel what it's like to listen. Uh, and some people just need a huge dose of that. And if that's the case, read it in three days. Yeah. Read it in one day. You could do it. I don't really care. You're not going to get I mad at people. You're not going to like send people emails like, you idiot. You're not doing the book wrong. <laughs> yeah, you're not doing it wrong. But it, it's like um, it's like running through an art gallery. I hope this is like a little art gallery for people. Nice. I, I've sure put a lot of time into it and, 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 and thought and care, and we've edited it so carefully for connection and for the sense of something where the parts are, are where the whole is bigger than the sum of the parts, you know. Um, and it's fine to run through an art gallery, but take your time to, yeah. that's what I would encourage. Cool. Yeah.
Love it. Um, actually, the art on the on the front cover is really interesting. Uh, <laughs> yes, and I, I I love it. So I'm looking at it right now, and of course I'm seeing the sun. I'm seeing this sort of a plant, but then it sort of looks like is it waves? Is it plants? Talk yeah. about uh, maybe it's an icon. I mean, I don't know. Oh, um, what a brilliant question, Steve! You're you're the first person to ask me. Really, like, tell me more about it. Yeah, but a lot of people have commented on it, saying yeah. it's beautiful, and it is. But uh, I think you're onto something when you say, uh, "Well, what is that?" It looks like there's something out of the picture. This is actually one part of a four-part icon. Yes. So. When you place the covers eventually of all four volumes next to each other, they're going to form a single image that tells the story of the listening day. And so this part is where the sun is coming up. Uh, and those are both waves and sort of uh, they, they also stand for, for grain. Mm. Then that that leaf you see in the right hand corner uh, extends in well into most of the second image, which is going to be the cover of the book that's out in October. Yeah. And that'll be uh, that'll be where the reader is introduced a little more. So I'll just leave that as a teaser. But there's a lot of intention there. It's original uh, from from a friend, actually, and uh, a designer I hugely respect, Connie Gabbert of Bend, Oregon here. She did this uh, original. It's a woodcut inspired illustration and uh, I, I just couldn't be be more pleased with it but it's deeply meaningful and when you see them all together it will I think really make sense for uh, for the whole project I love that I couldn't love that more I love that sort of artistic um, you know mysterious sort of leave me wanting I love that I love that um, say a quick word about iconography and icons for people that maybe aren't that familiar with sort of what that is oh yeah you bet well in the Christian tradition an icon is some piece of art usually visual art that's intended to direct your attention to God and to be used devotionally so I think about all of my writing actually in this category I've never really hashed this out with other writers or theologians, so I could be grievously off base, but I don't think I am. But I think of myself as a crafter of prose iconography. And here's and here's what I mean by that. And and poetic iconography, not just prose. But here's what I mean by that. You know, using any sort of symbolic imagination, whether that's a visual symbol or a written symbol, you can plant these ideas in people's heads that are remarkably powerful. It, it, it's almost a quasi-magical thing. You know, if I say if I say blue oak tree, all of a sudden you're all now visualizing blue oak trees in your mind. And what does that mean? And and what is that? And and it's this uh, it's this remarkable power that frankly in our culture we pretty much only use for advertising. Mm. <laughs> uh, but but that throughout human history and especially Christian history is used to worship. And so uh, it's not idolatry. It's not um, it's not some sort of funky Eastern thing. It's just a way of noticing that art is actually a way that we can connect to God um, in a way that encompasses our rational minds, but extends beyond it. And this is part of why why I'm so um, not just enamored, why I've experienced God so much through these things, 
you know, scripture over and over and over again says that our world is filled with images uh, of what's beyond it, of the unseen. Think of the tabernacle, um, uh, which was made according to the pattern that God showed him of something that extended beyond this world. Jesus is spoken of as the icon in Greek of God. We are the icons of God. So as we look around the world that has been created, we are ourselves dwelling inside an imaginative and symbolic place. We take it for granted, but this was all crafted uh, in the biblical vision to be a means of knowing God, of directing our attention to God. And so we mimic that creative aspect of God when we put into the things that we make, some sort of imagination that speaks meaning and speaks truth. And as Christians and pastoral artists or whatever you want to call people who do the sorts of things that I do, I think we're called iconographers. It's this call upon us to use that power well and to use it effectively, to make beautiful things, but also to make meaningful, uh, orthodox, uh, healthy things. So, um, you know, there's this kind of adage from the Eastern Orthodox Church who really are masters of iconography and the use of iconography. And they basically would sum up the whole conversation by saying, you know, an icon, most people think of an icon as a picture. It's not. An icon is a window. And if you use it correctly, it may become a door. And that is, that's how I think about it. So when I put the listening day in front of somebody, you know, somebody who has never really experienced iconography, uh, a soccer mom from Muncie, Indiana, who takes it to Starbucks every morning, right? Sits down. <laughs> Muncie, very Indiana. I was just, hey there, Muncie, if anyone's listening. I don't know why that came to mind. You know, she's never, she's never thought about these categories, perhaps. Uh, but she can experience it. And there's something when she encounters it that feels like, wow, I, I feel like it's, it's touching me somehow, or I feel like I'm experiencing something bigger than I should be right now. And her imagination and her spirit are expanded just slightly through that because she's encountered something real, something that I've intentionally put in because it's in the scriptures and because it's in the world around us. And because when we tap into these powers of imagination, we're not just unpacking rational meaning, we're bringing in these layers and shades, not just of mystery with a lowercase m, but of the mystery with an uppercase m. And I could talk about this for so long, Steve, because it's a passion, an absolute passion of mine. But I think this is the most beautiful work a life could be dedicated to, Mm. pondering God and then using my specific giftings, my specific experiences, the things that make Paul Pastor Paul Pastor to help point other people to God in this way that really is sort of specific to me, but bigger than me and not about me at all. And there's a sense of of joy and of freedom and of real holy magic to it that is just just more meaningful to me than I can can easily express. Well, I love it, man. I I absolutely love that we got to that that place uh, where we... um, really, really discovered sort of 
um, the passion that God has put in you. And I agree. I think, I think icons, I mean, I'm looking at one of the icons I have in my office. Um, and, uh, I, I, I love what you said about it's a window. And then if, if it really becomes something, it, it can, it can become a door. Um, because I think in the similar way that we're sort of longing for these ancient roots that we talked about earlier, I think we're longing for, we're still longing for, you know, good, rich, cerebral theology, but we're also longing for something that, that, that sort of theological sparring doesn't quite touch, you know, we're like the mystery with the capital M and when it's done artistically, there's less arguing and more, whoa, you know, um, <laughs> which I think is some of the, some of the, uh, beautiful, beautiful, um, uh, introductions that you're just now letting some people into. Well, um, love it. And we could talk about this all day, uh, but we're running out of time. Last question, Paul, you dedicated this book to your three children, uh, which I, I noticed and loved. Why, why did you do that? Oh, that's really interesting. So various people have, have asked me who actually made that dedication, mm. whether it's me or the main voice of the, of this book, mm. which is the, which is the father. So that's an intentional play there. It simply says for my children. Mm. So, so, um, it, it does have a double meaning uh, as most things in the book do. So it, it is, I hope the father saying, this is for you. My, it's setting up that there's a relationship, a child relationship with everyone who enters the book. But then it is also me, Paul Pastor, uh, dedicating it to my three children, Elia, Emmaus, and Marcos Arcturus. Uh, yeah, I dedicated it to them because they're my teachers. Mm. That's the way I think about it. Uh, they're my teachers in childlikeness. And I desire nothing but the best for them. I desire nothing but good gifts for them for their entire life long. But I also am a realist and I know that in this world they will have trouble. And I hope that whether, whatever the future holds for them or for me, that this book will be a true gift to them. Uh, but it's offered to them not just in parental, uh, in sort of parental, you should read this kids, yeah, it's for yeah. you, it's all my wisdom. It's really offered in gratitude. I look to them every day and I see what it means to receive freely. I see what it means to experience the world with perfect and open-hearted wonder. I see what it means to laugh um, uninhibited by self-consciousness or self-condemnation. I see a purity and a light that's present in them that God has placed in all children. And, and, I, and I learn from them how I may imitate that in myself. So love it. that's why, that's why it's for them. Oh, I love the double meaning. I love, I love everything you just said. So good. Uh, okay, everybody. So the listening day, volume one meditations on the way, Paul J pastor, you're going to want to pick up this book, uh, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, wherever you love to buy books, indie bound, uh, your local bookstore, uh, check it out. And then Paul, where else can we find you if, if uh, people want to dig a little deeper? Yeah, I have a website, pauljpastor.com. Uh, and on that site, if they want to correspond personally, I share my uh, PO box, my mailing address. That's actually how I prefer to correspond. So you're welcome to send me a letter. Uh, as well, I'm on Twitter sporadically at pauljpastor.com. 
Um, I think I have an author Facebook page, but I frankly don't do a whole lot with that. They're welcome to reach out to me, any of those means. Uh, a Google search as well. I, I've written extensively for um, magazines like Christianity Today, Outreach Magazine, and other, especially pastoral leadership type places. So if you have any interest in those types of things, uh, I have several dozen articles or pieces that are out there that um, that might unpack a little bit more of how I think. Yeah. But cool. Yeah. And what if people want to invite you to come and speak at their thing? Uh, write you a letter, go to the website. Go to the website. Uh, there's a contact form there. I love to speak uh, and and really tailor my my work to each community really closely. So if that's an invitation you'd like to extend, certainly you can reach out to me through any of those means. Uh, and I would be honored to consider uh, if it would work. All right, Paul. Well, thank you so much. This was so fun. I loved mm -hmm. hearing um, what you're passionate about and this sort of poetic iconography in prose and poetry is such a unique and interesting invitation for me to think about in terms of even my own vocation, my own writing, my own speaking. So thank you for that. That was, um, that was very rich. And um, yeah, I love it, man. Uh, I end the podcast by... Uh, I, we, we, I've sort of developed a little mantra. So this good word is um, dedicated to reclaiming what's, uh, what's human, what's holy about our, about our humanity. And so um, there's, this, there's this phrase I say, we are human and holy, we are dust and breath, we are limited and limitless, and we're in it together. So I would say that's you also, my friend. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Steve. It has been nothing but a pleasure today. All right. Peace, my friend. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Weens Author, Twitter at Steve Weens, and Instagram at Steve Weens. And you can find all my work, all my books, the show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, steveweens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at patreon.com slash thisgoodword.